Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 23. We'll read verses 1 through 5 and then verses 23 through 24. Hear now God's Word. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Therefore, whatever they tell you, referring to the Pharisees, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with with, with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Then verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe and mint, a tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. So, are you an above average Christian? Are you above or below average? So, by what standard did you evaluate yourself in answering that question? Was it your Bible? Or theological knowledge? Was it your marriage? Or your parenting? Was it your concern for the poor? Or perhaps your public persona? How you think you appear to others? A good example of how this can manifest itself is in the fact that we can show up for worship uh, to be seen, but inwardly have hearts that are far from God. We can come to the Lord's table. We can eat the bread and drink the wine. We can go through the whole liturgy and know every moment of what we need to do, to stand, to kneel, to bow, but fail to live in true communion with God. We can baptize our babies as we did today, but fail to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The outward without the inward is what the Bible calls a form of godliness that denies the power. It's just a veneer. It's just the appearance. This was a key problem for many of the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament. Jesus said they loved to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Like the Pharisees, we too can construct systems that impress men and perhaps comfort us while missing the mark. This is a legalism that has very little to do with God's actual law, but it has everything with us wanting to make the rules. So today I want to talk to you about legalism, and we'll begin by asking the question, what is legalism? Sometimes when people hear that term, they think that anything that has to do with law is legalism, but that's not correct. Evangelist Leonard Ravenhill once said, when there's something in the Bible that churches don't like, they call it legalism. 
So we need to be very careful about our definitions. God's law is holy. His commandments are more to be desired than gold. The problem is not law, but rather the Pharisees and our illegal use of the law. God's law is always about love. How to love God. How to love our neighbors. R.C. Sproul points out that legalism manifests itself in a variety of subtle ways. Basically, legalism involves removing the law of God from its original context. Picking and choosing or twisting. Wrong applications, taking it out of context. Some people like a list of rules, a set of do's and don'ts. That's one form of legalism where one is concerned merely with keeping God's law as an end in itself. God does want us to follow his commandments. Nevertheless, his law is given in a context, in the context of a covenant And that covenant is rooted in God's grace toward his people, his ill-deserved favor. The legalist isolates the law from God who gave the law, and thus it becomes void of love and joy, and it becomes simply a means of externalism. Following the rules is all that matters. We must remember that the Bible distinguishes also between the letter of the law, its outward form, and the spirit of the law. So the second form of legalism separates the letter of the law from the spirit of the law. It obeys the letter but violates the spirit. How does one keep the letter and violate the spirit? Well, this kind of legalism obeys the externals while the heart is far removed from any desire to honor God, which is the intent of the law, or any desire to love our neighbors. We want to perhaps show people how good we are. It's not out of concern for them that we do good. We do good to puff ourselves up, to look good. So the second type of legalism can be illustrated by the Pharisees who confronted Jesus over healing on the Sabbath day in Matthew 12, They were concerned only with the letter of the law and avoiding anything that might look like work to them. These teachers missed the spirit of the law, which was directed against ordinary labor that's not required to maintain life, not against efforts, for example, to heal the sick. Now, the third type of legalism adds our own rules to God's law and then treats them as equal to God's law. Treats them as divine. It's the most common and deadly form of legalism. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees at this very point, saying, You teach human traditions as if they were the Word of God. And so we have no right to heap up restrictions on people where God has not stated there is a restriction. When we use rules to bind the conscience, in an ultimate way, and make the rules determinative of one's salvation, 
we venture dangerously into the territory that is God's alone. External interpretations and exegetical distortions pervert the law and turn it into a means of work salvation. Again, justification. Look how good I am, God, and everybody else. If we're to truly follow God's holy standards, then it's essential that we keep the law in the manner in which the law requires and is specified by God. We don't get to add to it or subtract from it. Greg Bonson wrote, Using the law as a means of salvation is high-handed flattery and disdain for God's grace. On the other hand, willing submission to every ordinance of God as actually revealed and obedience in gratitude for God's gracious salvation are recognition of a creaturely position before God and honoring to his name. The Pharisees appeal to the law in a way calculated to help them escape the real and the original demand of God, and they did it under the hypocritical veneer of righteousness and piety. R.J. Rushdoony explained legalism is a code of deeds and observances as a means of justification before God. It substitutes man's acts for God's redeeming act in Christ as the means of, of, of justification. When the law is made into a justifying ordinance, it is radically altered and changed. In other words, there are proper uses of the law and improper uses of the law. So the law was never intended to be a means of salvation, but rather as a means of sanctification. Obedience to God's law flows from genuine gratitude, and it has to flow from the heart of the believer. Jesus said multiple times, if you love me, keep my commandments. And John expands on this when he writes, By this we know the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Again, there's the connection of love and law. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So according to Jesus in Matthew 15, 1-9, the Pharisees had perverted the meaning of the law and made it as he said, of none effect. And thus what the Pharisees call the law turned out to be merely the commandments of men. Now once we tamper with God's law, it is no longer God's law, but ours. The Pharisees had developed their own system that they managed. So, so far we've largely been talking about the Pharisees and what they do. And now comes the hard part, the, the recognition that we do too. That's why I think we have the record, so much record in the scriptures about the Pharisees is because uh, this is a, so the, in other words, the Pharisees are not mentioned in passing once or twice in the Bible. They're mentioned over and over and over because I think they're representative of all of our hearts. And so we're tempted, frankly, to do the same thing. Pretty much all of us, I think. In our effort to create our own self-justifying system, <clears throat> we always come up short. I like what John Newton said. He said, I endeavored to renounce society. That was, going to be, that was going to be his standard. That I might avoid temptation. 
But it was a poor religion. So far as it prevailed, only tended to make me gloomy, stupid, unsociable, and useless. So it doesn't work either. So to be clear, God's law is perfect, and we should never despise his law. I just want to make that clear point. This is not, we're talking about legalism, we're not saying anything bad about the law of God. It's holy, it's good, it's perfect. It's what we do with it when we twist it. Thus, Jesus was explicitly clear in Matthew 5. He said, do not think that I came to destroy or annul the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Who, who, whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, sometimes people read that passage and they see that word. Uh, Jesus says, I'm not going to destroy or annul the law until all has been fulfilled. And they, they want to make arguments about what fulfillment means. And I'll just say this. You can make the word fulfill mean whatever you want it to mean as long as it doesn't mean destroy or annul. When we alter by adding or taking away from God's standards, we, like the Pharisees, create our own litmus tests. The expression litmus test is a metaphor based on the litmus test in chemistry in which one's able to test the general acidity of a substance. You stick the little litmus test strip in there, if it changes colors, you know it's an acid or it's not. So our set of rules become a quick and easy way to distinguish between the committed and the uncommitted. It enables us to know who's in and who's out. We want to make sure that we're on the top, we're in the top of the class, and so we construct standards to guarantee the outcome. And by the way, most every group does this, and ours is no exception. And within the group, there are subgroups that differentiate even more. And so we need to construct uh, some boundary lines. And this can include things like vocabulary, buzzwords, dress, agendas, social customs. It's a lot easier to evaluate what's in your cabinet or refrigerator than it is what's in your heart, right? So for one group, the presence of beer or other alcohol would be a sure sign of spiritual trouble, to put it mildly. We could add to that list things like long or short hair, makeup, dress length, beards, dancing, card playing, smoking, and a whole bunch of other things. These are the litmus tests for true righteousness. But now things like anger and bitterness, gossip, slander, and lust, they're not so easily evaluated. But before we pass judgment on these folks, 
Perhaps we need to climb down from our high horse and see another version of the same thing. It can just as easily be a litmus test to think that our understanding of Christian liberty is the true sign of spiritual maturity. We can drink and smoke and dance or play poker or wear our hair or clothes or make up however we like, and in so doing, we pity those poor Christians who haven't arrived at our deep level of understanding and maturity. Those poor things. I used to be like that. In fact, we can take it right down uh, to the right microbrew, right? And the proper wine or cigar that's just so. Now, our prayer life and our marriages and our bitterness and our selfishness, again, are not so easily seen and evaluated by others, but these externals are badges that we can wear for everybody to see. The many forms of legalism extend to child training and entertainment and work and pretty much every area of life. So legalism can take on many forms, even some that seem to be opposite from others, and yet they all provide an illegitimate litmus test that Jesus condemns. Most of us have our shibboleths by which we decide who's in and who's out. And in case you've forgotten, as I often do when I hear that word, I have to say, no, what was that? Do you remember the story? It comes out of an incident recorded in Judges chapter 12 when the uh, Gileadites were at war with the Ephraimites. Let me just read a couple of verses here, uh, 5 and 6. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan River before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimites who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, and I suspect they must have had this written out and said something like, pronounce this word. And so um, then, so they would say, to him, say Shibboleth, and he would say Sibboleth. He'd leave the H out. He couldn't say Shibboleth. It was Sibboleth. Or he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Maybe we could ask people to pronounce Nacogdoches. <laughs> Every brand of high-commitment Christianity has its own set of shibboleths or litmus tests which are non-negotiable. Hey, perhaps we could write these up in chiastic form, right? Nathan, I'm pretty sure there's a cartoon in here somewhere. Now, legalists are dangerous. Because they are so well-intentioned. Of course, they never see themselves as legalists. They see themselves as righteous and obedient. They don't think of their extra-biblical rules as extra-biblical. They see them as extensions of the Bible that are actually helpful. They're there to help us all. 
David, I thought of the quote from C.S. Lewis that you posted this week. It said, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satisfied, but those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And so to make sure no one crosses the line, legalists erect fences this side of the line. God drew the line here, well I'm going to draw it here. I want to be sure we don't get near the line. They're godlier than God. For example, the Pharisees were especially concerned about Sabbath regulations, and thus they developed entire books of detailed regulations or fences to make sure a person couldn't transgress the law. The fourth commandment forbade working on the Sabbath, but the word work, of course, can have several meanings, so they set out to provide detailed definition. The Pharisees helped God define it precisely. We're always trying to help God and our neighbors, right? So the Pharisees could even tell you exactly how far you could walk, how many steps you could take before it became work, what you could carry, whom you could help, and what things had to wait until the next day. For example, in the modern world, the Jews have developed what is called kosher switches. You can get refrigerator, kosher refrigerators. You know how your refrigerator will cut off, and then when it gets warm enough, the thermostat kicks on. In fact, you can get kosher thermostats for your house now. And so the problem is, and Mount Sinai Hospital has kosher switches in the elevator, that just on the on Sabbath, those are turned on so that there is no on and off. They just stay on because if you hit a switch, you're sparking a fire, which is forbidden on the Sabbath. So if you just leave it on, then it doesn't have to go on and off and actually create a spark, which is starting a fire. Or they have rules that would allow a Gentile to change the batteries in your hearing aids on the Sabbath for the same reason. Because when you put in the new battery and turn it on, you have to spark a fire. And it just gets ridiculous. But we do the same thing. Jesus loved to cross these man-made fences, plucking grains of wheat and healing the sick. The Bible forbids drunkenness, and so we have Christians who just forbid all drink. The Bible requires modesty, so we're going to build our own modesty fences. We'll put out a page of all the details. The Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we will develop food rules that when followed will demonstrate how spiritual we are. Possibilities are limitless. One thing that's often overlooked is that no matter how many fences we build, we still struggle with the same old sins, with the exception that now we have to deal even more with the sin of pride. 
Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're following all these rules. But this is how legalism works. It takes our desire to follow Scripture and turns it into subtle additions to Scripture. And of course, we immediately expect everyone else to do likewise. So, let's review what legalism looks like. Perhaps we can examine ourselves to see if we, like the Pharisees, have built some of our own fences. First, a false standard, extra-biblical expectations, adding to or taking away from the Bible itself. Now, you're going to have to look closely, for these additions are usually camouflaged. They're usually intermingled with biblical standards, but with a twist. Second, these false standards become a means of helping us differentiate ourselves from others. We compare ourselves with other people rather than God. We look down instead of up. Third, we're more concerned with what other people think of us than we are with what we really are. We act one way in public and another way at our house. We have one set of rules for company and another when everybody's gone home. Fourth, we neglect the weightier matters, things like mercy, justice, kindness, service, but emphasize our checklist of spiritual activities. The fruit of the Spirit is the real checklist we need to be paying attention to. In other words, we need to major on the majors and not on the minors. Because we're all legalists at heart. Because we all, like Adam and Eve, want to be as God. We want to determine good and evil for ourselves and for everybody else. Following Christ means laying all of that down and submitting to him. Not my will, but your will be done. And I love what John wrote and his rules are not burdensome. Why? Because they're given because he loves us. So, let's pray. Father, we confess that we like to be in charge. We like to make the rules for ourselves and for everyone else. Grant us your grace to repent of these sins and and of our hypocrisy. Help us to be full of love and grace toward others. Give us charitable spirits and tender hearts. May we delight in your law, for it is truly good. Amen. Marshall Siegel from the Desiring God Ministry writes about the problem of legalism. Says we are all born legalists, but we are made into Pharisees. Spurgeon once preached, Beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. If I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian, for we are all born legalists. We are all born believing we can earn and deserve salvation. We are born resisting the idea of grace, mostly because of the awful things grace says about us. 
John Piper defines legalism as the conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God, a failure to be amazed at grace. Pharisees are legalists, but not the newborn kind. They have all the same fears about grace, but they have coated their insecurities with accumulated knowledge and morality and religion. Pharisees are legalists who are puffed up. They look educated, clean, and alive, while all, all the while dying inside. The seeds of sin and death keep growing and spreading underneath the confident appearance and practices, always harder and harder to cover up. We are born legalists, but Pharisees are informed legalists. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, saying, Well did Isaiah the prophet... Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They had developed a way of appearing to be godly without really preferring and prioritizing God in their hearts. What they knew about God was disconnected from how they felt about God, and therefore it left them further from God. As we come to the table, let us look at the inside. Look at your own heart. Where are you with God? Do you love Him? How would you know? How would anyone else know? Right now is a good time to start fresh. To make things right with Him to renew your covenant with him, to follow him and him alone. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator, without whom we have no standing with you. Indeed, we have been washed by his blood. And though our sins were as scarlet, we are white as snow. For his sake alone, we can stand in your presence. We can know the assurance of your pardon and the pleasure of your countenance. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. And we also pray that your grace will now be evident in us so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking and increase our faith. And now, Lord, we ask your blessings upon our feast, our rest, and as you have instructed us, we now cast all our cares upon you, for you care for us. Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.